and hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Mountain Ground Podcast. And once again, we're a full house. It's uh, myself, Mikalette, and then the Gegroen team, Peter and Frederik. So, Peter and Frederik will be talking a bit about the development of coffee, and coffee development, I think was their wording, and I'm very interested about this, because, well, obviously I have no clue about coffee development, so I'm going to be asking questions, listening out. And then after that, myself and Nicolette will talk a bit about extracting the most out of your training. We've been to a couple of races now lately in a supporting manner, and we are training for a few races now, and some of our athletes have a few races coming up. So we just want to talk about, you know, you've done all your training, how do you actually extract the most out of it? So without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to the Gron team, and they'll, they'll take us further. Lekker Pierre Nicolette, it's great to catch up again and uh, you know we'll be developing this topic as we go along. <laughs> uh, pun intended eh? Oh, Starts with the corny jokes already. <laughs> yeah, hi guys, it's, uh, it's nice to be talking to you again. Um, yeah, I can imagine those races were quite, quite exciting. I think Marius uh, attended one of those and he says that uh, the mist came in on the mountains. The DGT? Was that one of the ones that you guys uh, yeah, were U- at this weekend? UTD, weekend? Um, the Ultra Trail Drakensberg. UTD. It was about two weekends ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, that's the one I'm referring to. Yeah, Marius said it was a suffer fest. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, yeah, so get back to, to coffee. Um, so development of coffee, that's, that's quite a, a difficult theme to discuss. Um, I think it's there's, from the roasting side, um, it's one of the more important things that you need to consider as a roaster uh, because obviously you, you have different roast profiles that you can roast to um, to achieve different results. Uh, you'll, you'll roast darker if you want espressos or... Uh, less uh, well more body um, and less acidity but obviously with the trade-off of a bit more bitterness but um, the the big thing is and I actually had a discussion with Barista today about it as well is how do you know you're roasting your coffee and you're not going to be um, still be too green and get those grassy flavors or or go too far and be too too baked um, and and uh, my thoughts on it was what I've experienced in the past at Gegrond is with our previous roaster compared to the junior that we have now is it's the, the roaster has a big effect on the development of the coffee itself because there's so many variables that comes into play with um, like the airflow and the drum speed and uh, the, the type of heat transfers that's involved in your roaster um, so that you can't necessarily stipulated your medium roast you can you can take it out at like 215 degrees or if you take it out at 209 degrees um, that the development is going to be different it might actually be the same if if you're roasting on different roasters Um, but obviously there's there's a lot of variables come to play so it's difficult to to specify exactly where you get and i think that's where where cupping becomes quite important to, to ensure that you, you get your development in the coffee right. Um, yeah, I, I just want to say, uh, 
uh, so Frederick, I don't want to cut across you there, but I just want to, for our listeners, just to, to clarify. So when we uh, refer to the development of coffee, I think the simplistic way to look at it, uh, and, and Frederick obviously knows all the details, but you know, the longer the development, usually the darker the roast. So what we're trying to explain in today's podcast is the difference between a medium light or a light medium and dark roast. And that all plays into the development of coffee. Sorry. <laughs> Do you agree? Yeah, Peter? <laughs> yeah no, I, no, no, I agree. Um, yeah, so obviously when, when you roast coffee, um, you chuck in the green and then then you roast it and eventually it reaches a point where, where you achieve first crack. Now, first crack is basically the first um, audible indication of how far the the, the coffee bean has developed um, and that is where it's starting to become brittle and uh, um, the the energy inside just needs to escape it needs to th- there's moisture inside it wants to escape so the, the coffee actually cracks open um, and it gives an audible sound almost like popcorn so when your coffee reaches that then you kind of a, like a, a cinnamon roast it's really light um, and a lot of roasters, especially third wave roasters uh, out in America, roasts to cinnamon. But you have a risk of having grassy flavors if, if you're not doing it properly. Um, so generally, we, we tend to carry on a little bit into first, first crack. So first crack still happening, but the development of the coffee at that point in time happens so fast um, that even just 10 seconds can make a massive impact on how, how far and how, do, how much darker you roast. So a lot of times you, you, you work on temperature and also on color to, to ensure which, how far your coffee has developed, but also on the, the ratio of as soon as first crack starts to the end of your roast compared to the whole duration of the roast. Um, as a percentage so that also gives you an indication of development of the coffee um, a lot of people work on that but yeah if you if you go for medium roast obviously the the bean is brittle but it's not as brittle as with a dark roast so the development influences solubility it influences um, sugars it influences um, bitterness and acidity and sorry for and uh, I just want to say, like, uh, you know, what measures from the first crack, and correct me if I, if I got this wrong, uh, I just, <laughs> I don't hope I get this wrong, but, like, I just remember the first crack, from that point of first crack, that's usually the most nerve-wracking part of the of roasting coffee. Uh, I, rem- <laughs> I remember in December <laughs> when I roasted with you guys, that moment <laughs> you hear the first crack, until basically you open up, or you basically drop all the beans uh, into the cooling tray. That's basically what the development that influences yeah. development. So it's from first crack until you drop the beans into the cooling tray, right? Yeah. So that is the most nerve-wracking part because the coffee really develops quite quickly then, and and you can easily lose track of the roast because at that stage the beans actually becomes um, exothermic and they start giving heat off themselves so even if you switch off the the gas the temperature is still going to keep on rising 
so it's uh, it's a difficult thing to get the knack of. You you kind of see with the roasters that today you get so much information, so you can see when the environment the environment temperatures, rate of rise, so the the delta of every thirty seconds starts falling. Then you know first crack is there. Yes, uh, Pierre. So, so when you when you see it starts falling, the environmental temperature rate of rise, then you know first cracks happening because there's um, there's moisture coming off and influencing the probes, the temperature probes. So then you drop your gas, and the beans actually carry themselves <laughs> further into development. Frederick, with regards to like just because Peter said there about the cooling train, obviously you did kind of answer my question that I want to ask. About the obviously when you're dropping the beans, you know you've had it on heat, and obviously the beans have absorbed the heat, and they're still going to give off latent heat. And if yeah. you just stop the process, they're still going to carry on kind of roasting. Um, so the cooling yeah. tray, the machine that you use, because you use Genio machines, as if I'm right, I had the yeah. privilege of seeing your very nice machine there once. <laughs> but um, <laughs> do the cooling tray does that have a airflow through it or? Does that have a certain way of kind of, do you want to stop the, it's almost like taking the mock-up pot off the stove, you know, do you, you put it in cold water to stop that process? The cooling tray is at merely ambient yeah. temperature because now obviously, you know, if you're roasting in Germany in midwinter, the ambient temperatures can be quite cold. <laughs> if you're roasting in South Africa in midsummer, well, it's going to be bloody hot. So the cooling tray, do you say you set it at 15 degrees or 10 degrees or zero degrees to kind of keep your beans at the anticipated place of where you stop the roasting process. Yeah. So, um, Pierre, yeah. So, so the temperature outside, like Germany versus South Africa, um, that actually influences the whole development of the coffee inside the roaster as well, how it reacts. So oh, we wow. need to change our profiles um, depending on whether it's summer or winter. Um, but that's a different conversation. The cooling tray... It, it has a fan, a massive fan on the, on, on the, at the bottom. So that, as soon as you chuck it out, the coffee gets agitated. The, the cooling tray has these arms that just keeps on agitating the coffee. It keeps on going in circles just so that the coffee isn't laying in a lump, but that all the beans has a, has a chance to be at the bottom of the cooling tray where the heat gets sucks away outside. So... That fan sucks out any extra chaff that wasn't um, sucked up in the roaster itself. And then it also sucks out all the heat. And it cools down the coffee from like 210, 215 degrees down to um, 30 in like 3 minutes. So it needs to happen really quickly. Otherwise the development keeps on, keeps on continuing and you actually don't get the roast that you are aiming for. Okay, that's fascinating, man. Thanks so much. Because no, I know, like, ugh, my little history, and uh, I grew up on a wine farm, my dad being a winemaker, and I also knew, like, temperature, how big effect that played on, you know, just serving the wine at a certain temperature with the flavors and everything. Mm. So, now it's just something that's always fascinating. You know, all the different elements that, you know, coffee does bring out and all the variables we don't always understand. Yeah, and it, I mean, like, Pierre, on that, you know, like, it doesn't, I guess it's not really always limited to uh, to a product like you know running in the mountains the ambient temperature definitely plays a role in performance as well you know <laughs> you can I can be uh, 
because I can probably be a, a testimony to the influence that that you know temperature actually has on performance being in two extremes one Africa and more and then the second Europe so uh, you know I mean I know you guys are planning a trip down to Europe uh, I think in a month or so's time Yeah, yeah. Um, so we have a, a race coming up in Wales, actually, in Snowdonia. It's the Ultra Trail Snowdonia. And it'll be my first 100 miler. Pierre did his first 100 miler at UTD a few years ago before he turned 30. So for me, this is my, my big chance. I actually turned 30 on the the 7th of July and I'm giving away my birthday but yeah so on the 1st and 2nd of July we'll be running the 160 kilometers ultra trail Snowdonia in Wales so super excited to be coming over to the UK and hopefully having a chance to meet up with you Peter and recording a podcast in person <laughs> yeah I've been uh, I've been clearing my calendar <laughs> So I know there's uh, definitely uh, a few important events in the, in the nearby future. So uh, I've been def- I've been trying to clear up a few few things uh, so that I can join you guys in person. That would that would be uh, a real treat. Um, so that's your if that's your first hundred miler, is Pierre going to join for that event or is it just going to be yourself? Um, no, he also has an entry, so we'll both be running it, and basically we'll come over about two weeks beforehand and do a bit of a, a trip, make a, a journey of it, and travel the UK, mostly Scotland, I think, and mm. then we'll we'll end we'll end off the trip with the the race, both of us, and then we'll head back to South Africa. Okay, and for these longer distances, if you say this is your first hundred miler. Uh, the way you prepare for for an event like this, uh, have you changed your exercise routine much, or have you stick to what works? Yeah, so difficult, um, difficult question. I think the big thing with hundred milers and ultras in general is it's less about the physical training that you're doing and more about the mental training. So. What we actually want to discuss today is uh, extracting the most from your training. So you've done the physical plan and look, everyone knows that these days you can go online and you can download a training plan for almost whichever distance race that you're planning to do, whether it's road or trail. Um, and it's it's really cheap or it's free and you can get a, a training plan and with enough structure in your physical training, you know, the body adapts and everyone will see positive results from that. But then there's other components to training, such as how you eat, you know, your nutrition, your sleep, are you sleeping well, strength training, um, and your mental, your mindset. So having a positive mindset. And these are all things that actually play almost as big a role in the outcome of your race or race day as your physical training. Hmm. I think yeah, even just with these... to... No, Peter, go for it. Yeah, just to tag in with Nicolette there about the whole, you know, you've done all the, the training, the hard work, and yes, you could do that probably best through guidance of a coach, but now that you get to the race day, and I'll use a silly example as nutrition, it's like, you know, the perfect nutrition is not going to make a a racehorse out of a donkey but it can take the racehorse out of the race 
So it's so many things. And that's what we've really been focusing on lately because we had a lot of athletes doing UTD and then Hobbit and Klipspringer. Um, and now we're doing Snowdonia. And then we've got one or two more athletes doing the Recce Raid Race and the Namibia Crossing. And these are we just very focused on basically we've done all this hard work over the last like six to eight months with our athletes. How do we make sure the training, I don't want to say the training goes to waste, but how do we extract the most out of the training that they have done? And this is where these, these almost these soft skills come in and we spend a lot of time, whether it's a Zoom chat or a, just a normal old school phone call, try to really bring in these like just one or two topics um, that we yeah like focus on and um yeah we're gonna we're gonna expand a bit on it now so i don't know if you've any any questions you first want to ask about it and then we can talk about that first otherwise we have a few points that we'd just like to discuss yeah i mean like i <laughs> i can definitely ask a list of questions so i'll try and keep it concise uh i mean like again with these long distance events and it might be something that you're going to touch on later but i've actually used in the past nutrition as a way to keep motivated so it's almost like dangling that carrot in front of a donkey horse you know <laughs> so i usually have like little packs of food that i really look forward to get to so here in south africa one of the long distance events that i've done i've actually had a little bit of druvorsh in one or two of my of my uh, feeding packs and it was really one of those things where i look forward to getting to the next stop because i know there's something nice waiting for me uh so i just <laughs> just wanted to put that out there that uh yeah uh sorry Pierre, you can take us through uh no that's a <laughs> that's actually a cool um that's actually a cool thing that you bring up because that's how i actually met nicolette to be honest is i used to have those lindor lindor balls and you know from a nutritional point of view i don't really know how much value they add but look it's chocolate so it can only be great <laughs> but it's like that was to pull me out of a, i had it as like a little trick in my hat a, as a strategic point i would bring that little lindor ball out and i would open it and i would savor it and it will put a smile on my face because at the end of the day i found it's almost like it's not so much how you run but it's like why you run that pushes you through a hundred miler you know like fitness up until a certain point is very important but 100 miles is a very long way to go if you're just just running you need some deeper drive the mindset kind of comes in there you're very very yeah for me mindset is almost everything like i do do a bit of like visualization i try to i try to remain positive but i don't force positivity um, I keep negativity at bay and I try to keep negativity out. I am quite a, like an emotional runner. So if I feel great, I run fast. If I don't feel great, I like kind of crawl on my eyelids. So I've learned from Nicolette there a lot because she's, she's a super consistent. You know, if she doesn't feel great, you don't notice it. And if she feels amazing, you also don't notice it. She's just very, very consistent. And I think that's one of the keys. And what it leads to there is don't force these like phony kind of like positive vibes just almost clear your mind i try to have an empty mind when i race um purely just feeling the run flowing along the trails doing the important things things first like remembering to eat to drink to con pace consistently all those kind of things where a lot of times we can get very caught up in trying to 
convince ourselves that everything is going well, but sometimes we can just acknowledge the situation and then move on from there. Mm. So that is one of my big things. It's just like take some time to develop an ultra mindset or you know whatever you want to call it for yourself, but take some time to really focus on your own mindset. And I think that it, it sounds like it's also a bit of a realistic outlook on a long on a long distance race, you know, because, uh, you know, I think it, it definitely adds value that, you know, if you prepare that and be and you're realistic about the fact that you will be going through some tough patches, you will start to feel and experience emotions which you might not have experienced for a while or, you know, ever in your life. So I think it's about being realistic about the fact that you will be going through a journey that will take you a bit on a roller coaster and maybe yeah i'm not sure if, if that that approach should be conducive but uh, that's at least from my point i've always approached it from you know I, there will be times when you feel bad and you know that's fine <laughs> so so you just need to put one foot in eight of the then uh, one foot in front of the other and uh, you know you will also the flip side of it you will also get through those patches so yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need to have patience and that's that's on the race day. You need to enjoy the journey. It's not all about the destination and getting to the finish line. You will get there, but you need to be patient. In ultras, it's going to be a day, you know, 15 hours, 20 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours that you are going to be out there. And I think that alone is the biggest challenge that ultra runners face in you know, coming to terms with the fact that for two days they are going to be out there running. And you hear it all the time from their followers and their fans, the dot watchers. They can't believe that, you know, when you come back from your ultra run, they they had breakfast, they had lunch, they did a run, they had a braai, they went to a party, they came home, they slept, and then they did it all again the next day. And this whole time you were just out there running your ultra. So I think... Um, Patience and embracing the journey is a really big part of it. And then, yeah, we touched on nutrition. Um, it's also not only on race day, but also in the training. It's really important to train your gut. So you want to be practicing all your your race day nutrition in your long training runs. And this is, you know, from your pre-race breakfast um making sure that you've got that dialed in nicely when you're going to have it how long between your breakfast and you start running and then obviously your during the run nutrition this is the most important and then refueling after your run so having that protein getting it in protein before you go to bed um, muscle recovery is really really important and also on the nutrition topic hydration so you want to, before your race, make sure that you're well hydrated, drinking plenty of water or a, an isotonic electrolyte drink. So the same concentration as the electrolytes in your blood. And then same thing after the race, hydrating well and optimizing recovery or after your long training runs, just optimizing that recovery so that you can get the most out of your training for that day. And Nicolette, I have a question for you on, uh, especially leading up to a long event like, say, a hundred miler, um, and it relates to nutrition. It's about uh, carbo loading. So I don't know if this is an accurate 
or not but you know usually you tend to taper down a bit uh, on the volume that you actually trading within the week before say a long distance event and your glucose within your body basically reach a saturation if you just keep eating your normal diet um, so in terms of carb loading is that something that that you uh, believe in or is it something that you know, it's a bit of a, I wouldn't say, probably it's a bit of an old school mentality. Yeah, interesting question. I mean, these days there's so much controversy between, you know, carbo loading and uh, fat burning and optimizing your fat and being, what do they call it, paleo. Um, so interesting. But of the recent research I've read with regards to carbo loading, it's not something that you want to do the day before the race. So you don't want to go overboard on the carbs. The whole pasta dinner, pizza the night before is not really the ideal um, pre, pre-race um, nutrition. The whole week actually before you start to race, you want to just maintain your carb intake so important things are not changing your diet you want to consume things that you know your body deals well with so your standard regular diet and yes carbs are important so don't cut them out and maybe eat a couple extra um, on a day-to-day basis but you want to be doing this for about a week before your race Um, that is the the recent um, science that I've read with regards to carbo loading. And I also think uh, I, I have a very good case study, again, <laughs> in my personal life, but usually if there's an event and the week before I'm quite relaxed and there's not too much going on at the work and maybe I can go a day or two ahead of an event, you know, it makes such a massive difference in performance. Uh, these events, we almost like on the Friday night, you still need to get things done before you run on Saturday, I've really struggled with those events. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I'm glad you guys are going a week or two ahead of there, your event in Wales. And, um, you know, I hope that makes a big difference. I mean, it's, it's going to be great to, to keep an eye out for, for you guys and to see how you guys are, are representing or <laughs> uh, South Africa there. Um, so, yeah, to look forward to that. Yeah, it's a very important point you actually touched on there and it's one I always enjoy talking to my athletes about. Um, it's stress, just overall life stress. And with that, usually sleep and everything comes in as well. So if it's going to de-stress you to go two or three days before, be in a quiet whatever area where you can just be by yourself, not have deadlines to chase, not have a million people to look after and just to actually get your sleep in, you know, it's all part of your taper and the taper isn't just like, Oh, I'm running less, you know, (laughs) it's, there's so much more to it. It's, you still want to be moving. You still want to like, just keep your training scared. You actually want to keep every things a lot like consistent. So we don't actually bring down our our frequency of running during the taper, but we do obviously bring down the volume Um, because our bodies are still used to a certain amount of movement and then I really focus on sleep and acknowledging the stressors of the race so if it's a self-navigation race we'll discuss that with our athletes like how do we actually use this tool on our wrist that can help us navigate Um, because all of that will you know it's a rational 
irrational kind of stress or fear and we can rationalize it and then eliminate it so the but the take-home thing there what i actually want to focus on is just sleep get enough sleep and like so many of us we always want to add some you know majestic hill session or interval session or some form of recovery boot or i don't know what else is out there that people sell us but then i asked the athlete like okay but how much are we sleeping every night and they're going like no 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 four hours but you know i get away with it i'm like no the best way for recovery for performance enhancement will be to just sleep try to sleep six to eight hours if you can a night if you prioritize sleep your performance will increase like there's so much that you actually don't have to do almost i want to say if you can just prioritize sleeping if you have an hour extra to sleep a day that's going to be so much more worth than an hour's worth of strength training you know you'll be able to run more if you recover and sleep more so that is a big thing to head to the race early enough you know get some rest and recovery just get yourself in the correct mindset and that's why i go back to mindset again just get back to that point be comfortable with what you're going to do and just get ready for the journey that you're about to embark on yeah that is uh i'm glad you mentioned six six to eight so i'm still in the in the green and yellow zone (laughs) but i listened to a podcast the other day where they actually said the professionals would take like a they would usually take like a lunch nap and then they would usually try and sleep almost like 10 hours a night now you know i i I don't think I've come across a lot of people who are able to sleep 10 hours a night, but, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously, yeah, I think it just emphasizes the fact that sleep is really important. Um, so yeah, thanks for, for sharing that. Yeah. And then, um, just another kind of on a similar note, um, that not stressing. So we, we both read a book called, I think it's called running with a pack by Mark Rowland and he has this interesting concept for ultra runners about while you run what you you don't want to be thinking the whole time because thinking consumes energy and you need your energy I mean you're out there running for 24 hours plus so he says all you want to have is thoughts now this is quite an interesting topic with you know today's stressful lifestyle that you actually don't want to be stressing and thinking about all these things like maybe you think you undertrained you know you were ill you had covid you didn't get in your key long session before your race or maybe you think you overtrained and you've been doing too much um or you struggle with nutrition and you haven't eaten anything for the past hour but all of these factors they have they play a huge mental role in an ultra and just thinking about them and it becomes all consuming and it actually saps your energy and this energy is you need it like you need it to complete the race so i find that concept concept really nice in terms of having thoughts just letting them be and kind of through flowing through your mind and this sounds way too much like Piers. Um, <laughs> it's his department, but but it's actually relevant. I mean, it's not scientific, um, but it's all part of the the ultra mindset that he spoke about. It's just having these thoughts and not thinking. Uh, uh, just to um, just to 
Sorry, Peter. Just too quick. I'll be I'll be brief. Um, just to touch in there with a bit of science. They actually did take a lot of elite cyclists and they put them on a. They gave them a certain workout to do on indoor trainers. So just like push them as hard as they could go for X amount of time, and they saw the amount of watts they could push out average over say whatever thirty minutes or whatever the the protocol was. And then they got the same group of cyclists in again, and they gave them a thirty minute math test before the session and then they put them on the exact same session again and after the 30 minute math session every athlete had significantly reduced performance and there they just proved that if you are overthinking and if your brain is tired your physical performance will be decreased so it was just for me it was just like you know, so many times I run and I go, okay, cool, I'm moving at five minutes a K or I'm moving at six kilometers an hour or whatever. Am I going to reach this point at that point? And, you know, all of that thinking just like really tires you out. So, so like Nicolette said, you know, have thoughts, let them come in, let them go, let them flow through you and just feel the run, you know, just move through the trail and just almost be empty. You know, it's a really, it's, I guess it does go a bit of a Zen state. But it is like constant, constantly doing math in your head about how, you know, how fast you're going or where you're going to be. It's it's really tiring and you need that mental energy to recruit your physical energy to get you to the finish line. Yeah, I I, I think I'm in trouble because <laughs> I, I usually use my long runs to sort out the world problems. I think sometimes I should be running <laughs> with, a, with a notebook with me because I, I, in that moment, I think think to myself you know i've really sorted out a few real world problems and then uh, usually afterwards you know they don't seem so lucrative to pursue uh so <laughs> but i do enjoy having a, f- a few uh interesting discussions with myself and entertain keep myself entertained uh it is a, it is quite a long distance and uh yeah so <laughs> but yeah i i think anyone would benefit from uh you know being a bit more mindful um towards that moment so so yeah yeah absolutely yeah so it's like it's important to do some of your your long training runs alone and then also with other people i mean there's benefits to both so when you run alone you you run your own pace and you it's easy to figure out what your forever pace is that's what we call it in our coaching it's like a level one easy run super comfortable and the pace that you know you can run forever and that's what you need for an ultra so it's important to do your some long runs alone and figure that out and then it's also fun and important to run with other people i mean people that are slower than you that there's no harm at all in doing sessions that are you know super easy it's like it's actually a key element in training for an ultra is to do a pace that's slower than your comfortable pace because at 140 kilometers you you're probably going to be hiking and that's definitely you know slower than your your normal running pace and then also running with um, athletes that are maybe a bit fitter or faster than you or stronger on climbs because these are the guys that push you and test your limits and help you both not only physically but mentally as well because on the race obviously you're going to have these challenges where you either racing someone next to you or you feel really terrible and you have to push hard so 
that's just one of the um the other factors in extracting the most from your training is running alone and running with other people mm. and what would you say is the ratio between uh the lone running and running with people is that absolutely you know every person's prerogative to uh to make that call for themselves yeah i suppose it depends um on the individual so some athletes really enjoy running alone and for those i suggest doing more races because at least when you go to a race you're able to gauge your fitness and strength against others which is important in just you know your b and c races in the the lead up to your major race because otherwise it's really difficult to gauge you know what your progress has been through your your training um but then you know some people are really motivated by being part of a club or a group of friends and going to run with them as often as possible and just for them those specific people to remember maybe once a month or twice a month to do a run by themselves especially a longer run because the reality is if you're running an ultra you're probably going to be running alone for most of it so it's important to know your own pace and be comfortable within your own mind yeah, so I think what it also gets there is like it's very individual and the ratio isn't like we can't say it's like a one to two ratio. Um, it's very much you do what you need to do for yourself and kind of like acknowledge the positives of both and be aware of the downfalls of, you know, either. Anyway, but I know you guys were talking about coffee ratios and the, you know, the preamble for, of the podcast so um i'll let you go educate us a bit more on that because i'm quite i'm quite interested on that now that we had the development of coffee let's go into the coffee ratios a bit yeah it's a lot of wordplay today <laughs> the development of coffee development of athletes uh and now into the ratio topic so yeah so coffee ratios so just to start off exactly what we mean when we say coffee ratios that's basically your grounded coffee to water ratio so that's basically what we're working towards so if the pack says you know it's a ratio uh of let's say 1 to 15 then you know for every gram of coffee you're going to use 15 milliliters of water uh so this basically three ways in which you can determine your ratio so you have a volumetric type of uh, ratio which is spoons which i'll get to why that would definitely not be a preferred method for determining your coffee to water ratio and then we have uh, uh, basically grams of coffee to liter or liter of water to grams of coffee uh, which is generally in the coffee world accepted as the norm and then you have your just ratio 1 to 13 or 1 to 15 or 1 to 17 so basically saying again like i said in the beginning one gram of coffee equals x amount of milliliters of water uh, so yeah so that's basically what you're working towards um so just to get back to so, my yeah yeah sorry peter so i'm um, just it might be a very blonde question but you know my hair has been growing back again so <laughs> so um basically just is this why when you watch the like the really cool instagram videos of people making like aeropress coffee or whatever they've they've got the coffee on a scale and then they have the little jar and they, they basically measure the amount of coffee the amount of water everything they put in is this the kind of like the root you know the yeah the start of it yeah, I, I mean, that's the most accurate way to go about it. Uh, you know, the common theme 
that we're trying to get across is that you know we've given our listeners a toolkit to alter to basically develop a coffee that they really enjoy and to do that consistently and accurately you need to limit your variables so if you measure your water you measure your coffee then you know that's you know that's a given that's not really changing uh, whereas if you use a more volumetric type of measure like say a spoon if you have a very fine grind coffee you know your spoon the amount of coffee grinds in that spoon is going to be more than say it's a very coarse grind so by default you're not going to have a like-for-like -like comparison so that's the reason why like two or three uh, tablespoons of coffee with for every I don't know, let's say, say 250 mils of water you know that's not really an ideal way to to look at coffee and you know if possible first prize is to actually weigh your ground coffee and then your water and then you know okay right this is the ratio that i'm uh, aiming for and that's you know that's a consistent so you know the general norm is you know a good starting point is always like a 1 to 60 ratio or sorry 1 liter to 60 grams of coffee so and then you can obviously use a bit of maths hopefully they're not cyclists and uh, you know you can actually calculate what your uh, <laughs> what your um, you know your water volume should be um, so and just to get back, I'm not dissing cyclists. It's that example that Pierre used about the cycling and the maths. So just to clarify. <laughs> um, so, yeah. And then basically from there, you can start uh, changing that ratio, um, you know, according to your preference. However, I would say that it's very important that you first change all the variables we discussed in the previous three podcasts, which is your coffee grind, uh, your water temperature, agitating your coffee before you really start changing your ratio. So make sure that your coffee is extracted properly before you start playing around with your coffee ratio. Um, I think that's something a lot of people uh, tend to get wrong. If they want more bitter coffee, instead of like maybe grinding the coffee a bit finer, or you know maybe letting it seep a bit longer they would start increasing the amount of coffee and that really is a lot of wastage so um, that's really all that i want to say you know in terms of today's topic on ratios is start off by using a uh, 60 60 grams of coffee to one liter and then just work out the ratio for a cup of coffee so you know if it's if you make it 250 mils of coffee, then you know you're going to use about 15 grams. Yeah, I think my maths is right. So yeah, you're going to use 15 grams. Uh, what is very interesting though, is if you're using something like a French press, where the, where the coffee is basically submerged for a longer period of time, that is ideally what, where the one to, or you know, the 60 to one liter ratio works well. But if you're going to use something like an aeropress or sorry, not the aeropress, if you're going to use something like a pour over type of coffee where parts of the coffee isn't seeped in the coffee, then you might think of increasing it a little bit. You know, you might look at something like a one, uh, one liter to 70 grams of coffee. Okay, cool. Cause that's exactly what I was going to ask. Um, just about the, you know, we spoke about all the other variables, you know, heat, pressure, roast, all that stuff. And, but obviously we need like a ballpark figure or like a 
golden number, I guess, to start with. So I'm glad you said the one to 60 or the one liter to 60 grams. It's kind of like the ballpark where you start and then you make your changes from there. And if I understand correctly, basically, I like to think of coffee in pressure. I'm just obsessed with pressure, I guess. <laughs> so for me, it's obviously French press is less pressure. Um, you can get away with a bit less, uh, you know, your ratios to that one to 60 because obviously everything is submerged for longer, more particles of coffee gets you know touched i guess without sounding weird um but then the more pressure you add you might want to add because it's in a more confined space and you, less parts of the coffee might be you know utilized so you might want to add that you know the amount of coffee to your because i must say i'm bad with like my french press i have my aeropress i literally have like I grind and then I just like dump a lot of coffee and I'm like eyeball it and I'm like cool that's right but obviously sometimes I do realize now like sometimes my coffee because the AeroPress I've yet to figure it out so I'm going to get you guys to do a whole podcast on like AeroPress like because I've been using the AeroPress a lot in the mountains now lately because it's so light I can pack things in it I pre-grind beans and I put it in a ziplock and I like put it in the AeroPress itself so I can like you know, I can really utilize all the space. And with the jet boil, it just works very, very well. So I've been using the AeroPress a lot. And um, knowing Hogsback, I was out in the mountains for a long time. Same with UTD and Lesotho. And you just, you need a nice way to make coffee and have good coffee. Because <laughs> it just makes life so much better. So I really want you to do, you know, but you guys can let me know when you're ready with that. Um, we just do a nice, like, AeroPress coffee kind of uh podcast and just educate us properly yeah that's gonna be the that's gonna be the the pinnacle of everything that we discussed because the aeropress is the most versatile tool to prepare coffee so we're gonna bring everything together and then we're gonna like use a uh an aeropress as basically the tool which gives you the most flexibility and the most variables which you can adjust so i really look forward to that um but uh, I'm glad you've been taking your AeroPress on your adventures. And I hope that, you know, in the week ahead that you guys are planning a few really nice runs and adventures and some training sessions. Yeah, definitely. I need to like top up my social media a bit because I have actually been taking photos of my coffee. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, no, it's, uh, it's, I'm very glad, you know, it's nice that we're working it from a methodical point of view and the AeroPress, like you say, will be the the last kind of point of it so i think it's a really cool point to just like you know we've kind of like run our time i guess so yeah, i'm getting too excited about the the, <laughs> the talk here now so let me just cut it off rather um but no, i'm very excited for the net po next podcast and uh, it's always great catching up with um, you you and frederick and i'm very very keen to meet up with you in Wales, or maybe we can even pop over to ireland you know apparently south africans don't need visas there so you know we might <laughs> just uh, jump across <laughs> anyway as always like so much fun chatting with you eh? <laughs> yeah thanks so much guys um it was great like usual and yeah good luck with your training and can't wait to see you over in the uk i'm sure we'll make a plan well, thanks, guys. And it was really great. Uh, yeah, great catching up. Bye. Thanks so much for joining on this week's episode of the Mountain Ground Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any of the episodes, making sure that you stay caffeinated and keen for adventures.